So we're in Ezekiel 19. Last week, obviously, we finished 18. And what happened at the end of 18 is that Israel was whining at God for being unjust. They thought that the reason that they were in exile was because of what their parents had done. Going back to Exodus, where we have the cleft of the rock, and God says that he visits the iniquity of the third and fourth generation. So the people in exile figured, tisn't us, it was our parents that screwed up. So the prophet goes into a riff saying, no, it was you. And if someone sins, he will pay personally for his sins. And if he repents, his repentance will be sufficient. And he doesn't have to worry about the parents. Now, having said that, I think the other thing I said was what parents do is they set a culture. So what happens if the parents run off the rail is they teach their children to run off the rail as well. And so the ramifications of that very often do go down through several generations. So in verse 30, 1830, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the end of that. Now we're going to do a lamentation. This lamentation is in prophetic imagery. In other words, it's not you, 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 and you. It's sort of the lion and her cubs and all that kind of thing. And in order to understand that, it helps to have a chart of the kings of Israel during the time of the exile. Babylon. Josiah, who reigned for 31 years, died. He's got three sons and one grandson. Now, one of the things that's going to happen in here is we're going to talk about a lioness giving birth. These do not all have the same mother. So the interpretation of this commentary I read, which makes sense to me, is the lionesses Israel. In other words, Israel gave birth to these kings. Notice that Shalom, or Jehoaz, reigned only for three months, and he was taken prisoner by Pharaoh Necho. Now, what was going on there in 609 B.C. is Pharaoh Necho was allied with the Assyrians against Babylon. So Necho goes north through Israel to join with the Assyrians to fight with the Babylonians. That doesn't work out really well because the Babylonians are on the rise. So Necho comes back and in that process he grabs up Shalom and takes him down to Egypt where he dies. The next one is Jehoiakim and Eliakim, and he was installed by Necho. He reigns for 11 years and dies in Jerusalem. 
He's replaced by Jeconiah, or Kaniah, or Jehoiakim, who only reigns for three months, and he's taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar and dies in Babylon. And then Zedekiah is the one who is the king in Israel as most of the book of Ezekiel is being written. And he will lead the nation in rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar and will himself then get taken off to Babylon. The important part of this is where each of these goes and how long he lasts. Because in the prophecy, that's the only way you can tell who's being talked about. So now let's go to Ezekiel 19. And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, so God is telling the prophet to do a lamentation because this prophecy is being written in the interim between Nebuchadnezzar's first and second trip to Jerusalem. First trip, he takes Daniel and a whole bunch of people with him and the gold and silver out of the temple and so forth and takes them home, leaves a king in residence there. Second time, he sands the whole thing flat. Ezekiel is prophesying between those two events. And so what he's doing now is he is prophesying the destruction that is going to come upon Israel because of Nebuchadnezzar's second trip. And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, what was your mother? A lioness. Among lions she crouched. In the midst of young lions she reared her cubs. And she brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion. And he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pits. They brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. So that's the first one we talked about, Jehoaz, who was taken by Pharaoh Necho. And when it says drawn by hooks, there are old engravings of prisoners being led with iron hooks in their mouth and their nose, and you know, like you would lead a bull around by a ring in his nose. So the idea of him being taken by hooks indicates that this is not a friendly departure. He is being scarfed up by Necho and dragged back there, and as I say, he will die in Egypt. He never comes back. So verse 6. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He seized their widows. He laid waste their cities. And the land was appalled, and all who were in it, at the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him. From provinces on every side, they spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit with hooks. They put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon and brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard in the mountains of Israel. So that is in our chart here, Jeconiah or Kaniah or Jehoiakim. And he was installed by Necho. He was installed by the Egyptians. And he will be taken then by Nebuchadnezzar. Then Zedekiah reigns in his left as 
king by Nebuchadnezzar, and Zedekiah will get taken out on Nebuchadnezzar's second trip. And the place where you want to be for all of this, by the way, is in 2 Kings. So you want 2 Kings 23 and 24. Jehoz was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bounds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Joash, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim, but he took Jehoaz away. And he came to Egypt and he died. So the deal here is Eliakim has been installed by Necho after he takes Shalom out. Eliakim reigns for 11 years and dies. One can assume it's a sort of normal thing. And then he is succeeded by Jehoiakim, Zechariah, and he only reigns for three months before Nebuchadnezzar shows up and takes him out. So we're all the way down to verse 10 in Ezekiel 19. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches, by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers, scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. So what obviously is being said is Nebuchadnezzar is going to flatten the place. And that lamentation then is written by Ezekiel from Babylon about the future destruction of Israel under Nebuchadnezzar. So we are now all the way down to chapter 20 in Ezekiel. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. So this is the third named time period in Ezekiel. Remember, the first one was in the fifth year of the captivity. The second one was in the sixth year. This is now the seventh year. This is the second time that the elders have come to consult with him. Remember we talked about it last time that during the biblical time period, certainly up until the resurrection of Christ, virtually every nation had seers and prophets who were connected to the supernatural. Now, most of them were connected to what we would call demons, but they were in fact legitimately connected. So the idea of humans connecting to the supernatural and finding out stuff 
supernaturally is as old as humanity. Every culture had its connectors. They were oracles or witches or mediums or whatever. And of course, God says, don't mess with that stuff. And there's two reasons for that as far as the rabbis are concerned. Nachmanides and Maimonides have opposite views of it. I think Maimonides was the Egyptian who was a medical doctor. And he was sort of in the Aristotle camp. And he said, don't mess with this stuff because it's all charlatanism doesn't work. Nachmanides, who was a Kabbalist, says, don't mess with that stuff because it does work. And you'll get hooked up to the wrong kinds of spirits. I, by the way, am in that camp. My philosophy is don't mess with it because it does work and you'll get hooked up with something that you don't want to be hooked up with. The idea then that the elders come to inquire of a prophet is something that would happen routinely. And we've already had one instance where they came and tried to talk to him and God shut him down. Now he's going to do it considerably more emphatically. So verse 3, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. In other words, you and the horse you rode in on. I'm not going to talk to you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt to a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. So, verse 4, will you judge them, son of man? In other words, what he's saying to the prophet is, look at these people and make a judgment about them and let them know the abominations of their fathers. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back through some history here where God is going to recount the history of his relationship with Israel. You have to take this in the context of chapter 18 where the Israelites in exile are saying, oh, well, the reason we're here is because of what our fathers did. So God now down here is saying, tell them what their fathers did. So if you hadn't had the rift where God explains that the reason that you are where you are is because of what you did and the culture that you live in. Now, the fact that your fathers may have set it up doesn't mean that you're not responsible for it. So that riff is necessary to set this up because what the prophet is going to say is, this is what your fathers did. And the proverb in Israel is, well, the reason we're here is because of what our fathers did. So what we're going to do is go through a thumbnail sketch of God's relationship with Israel, which are his reasons for not wanting to be consulted by them. So I'm down to verse 6. So in that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, 
every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This refrain is going to be repeated several times. What he's going to do is he is going to recount just how scummy Israel's behavior is. He's going to say, I was just about to pull the plug on them, and then I decided not to for the sake of my name. The idea here is even though Israel has behaved as an unfaithful wife, and we did that back in chapter 17, I am not going to make an end of them because I need them for what I am going to do with the Gentiles. So if I destroy Israel, the nations will say, well, this is just a God like every other God. He's capricious and he destroys people and there isn't any reason to prefer him over any other God. So what God is doing is very carefully protecting his own name because even though Israel is an unfaithful wife, he is going to use her in the process of reaching the nations. So he doesn't want his name destroyed and have people say that he was unable to do what he said he was going to do. And by the way, just as an aside, you all remember the Mark Twain quote. I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but somebody essentially asked Mark Twain, why do you believe the Bible? And his answer was, the Jews. These people, people of the book, have existed in spite of everything for thousands of years. And the fact that they continue to exist, they continue to be a coherent people, is evidence all by itself of the existence of God and the truth of the Bible. So what God is saying here in the prophecy is, you really deserve to be destroyed several times. He's going to say that. But I didn't for the sake of my name. Moses is the one that intercedes to God for Israel. And in that, he becomes for us a model of Christ. So I'm at Ezekiel 28 and a half. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that I should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom I lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. In another context, when we go through the plagues in the Torah, we've got a spreadsheet that I put up. And as the plagues play out, there's three sets of three plus one in the plagues. By each of those plagues, he is sending a message to Egypt. So what he's saying here is that he refrained from destroying them so that he wouldn't mess up the message that he was sending in the Exodus. Verse 10. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. 
I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. So obviously this is the generation in the wilderness that perishes. You all know this, but I want to state it for purposes of the recording. As you read this, the way it's written, God sounds like a cosmic parole officer or a cop. You guys didn't follow the rules, therefore, down you go. That's not the way you should read it. The way you should read it is God gave them their statutes and rules, not for statutes and rules per se, but because following those, you will have a good society. If you organize your society according to God's rules, you will have a just society, you will have as good a human society as it is possible to have. So when Israel throws those rules aside and starts making their own, what they wind up with is idolatry and human sacrifice and injustice and all sorts of other pathologies. And it's those pathologies that moves God to be ready to destroy them. That plus, of course, the adultery where they worship other God. So it isn't the case that God runs around smelling people for bacon breath and, oh, if you ate shrimp cocktail, you're going to hell. That's not the point. The point is those rules are intended for you to make a good society. When you cease to follow them, your society goes to pot, and then you wind up in a place where God is on the verge of destroying you, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. As I have said many times, Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed for unauthorized use of the reproductive organs. The unauthorized use of the reproductive organs was a step up to the violence, but it was the violence that finally tips God over the edge. So I'm now down to 13 and a half. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their hearts went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. The failure to walk in his statutes leads inexorably to idol worship. And when it gets to idol worship, that's where God gets grumpy with them. 18. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes. They were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. 
Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Notice this refrain over and over and over again. It isn't because of Israel's merit. It is because God has a purpose for Israel with respect to the nations. And if he wipes them out, that purpose will not be satisfied. Because as the prophet is saying here over and over and over again, they richly deserve being handled like Sodom and Gomorrah, which is to say being reduced to a greasy burn spot. 23, moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations, disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life, and I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Okay, the idea here is God has given them good laws. Laws that are profitable for wholesome human society. That's what this refrain is, if you do them, you'll live. The idea is your society will live, you will have a healthy, thriving society. Each of you will do as well as you can do and it will be as well as any human society can have. We're talking about Deuteronomy 28 territory here. Moses tells them in the wilderness that this is what's going to happen. In Deuteronomy 28, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow the rules and the statutes. And then in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, at the end of Moses' life, he says, and after all this, when you've done all that stuff and you've been sent into exile and things are just really lousy with you, at that point God will bring you back and he'll circumcise your heart. So Moses' prophecy describes this process. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And the way that reads is God gave them a bad set of rules. The commentary that I have read says gave them up to bad rules, which is to say they were going for bad rules and God didn't restrain them. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it, however, is in at least one instance that I can think of and probably more, God commissions a lying spirit to go to a king of Israel. So when you have a really bad king and God wants to give him into the hands of whoever the current enemy is, one of the things that God does is sends a lying spirit to that king and that lying spirit then influences the king to do something militarily stupid and he goes down. The way I describe that, I don't know about you guys, I'm sure none of you can do this, but I'm perfectly capable of lying. And I am a servant of God. So God himself is not lying, but God has in his employ servants who are capable of lying. I'm one of them. So the idea that God would send a lying spirit to a king or send 
to them unclean spirits that would lead them astray is in other parts of scripture perfectly biblical. Let me give another example. We've done this hundreds of times. When a prophet comes to Israel, the first thing he does is says, repent. And he lays out what their problems are and says, knock it off and repent. When they don't repent, he then starts speaking in parables. And the whole purpose of a parable in that circumstance is to speak a word that is true, but in a way that they can no longer use it for action. So Yeshua himself quotes Isaiah 6, where God sends the prophet and says, you keep talking to these people, but make their eyes and ears dull so they aren't going to understand you because they're going into exile. The comment was, I think, in Deuteronomy, where you get false prophets and they are sent to test you to see if you're going to do what God says. So the idea of God or the prophets always speaking clearly, there are lots of examples in the Bible where that's not the case. But short answer to 25, I have no idea, but those are sort of my estimates of what it could be. So 25 and 26 again. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up of their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. So the idea is prophets of Baal who led them into child sacrifice. And one way you could look at that is they had become so defiled that God sort of released the prophets of Baal on them. 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land which I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name shall be called Bema to this day. Look at here, 28 again. There they presented the provocation of their offering. In other words, their offerings that they presented were a provocation to God because they were offering abominations, which is to say their own children in many cases, and they were offering them to idols. So their offering had become a provocation. 30. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after these detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. So what God is saying is, you guys want to be just like everybody else. And by the way, that's how they got themselves a king, remember? They said, we want to be just like everybody else and have a king. 
So what they're saying here is we want to be just like everybody else and worship idols. And what God is saying is, no, you're not going to be like everybody else. And the reason you're not going to be like everybody else is because then you will cease to be Israel and you will evaporate and go into the nations. And the plans that I have for you to redeem the rest of the world will not come to fruition. So no, you can't do that. All right, I am at a paragraph break point here, and we are just about out of time. So we'll pick it up at verse 33 next week. Oh, no, no, no.